Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We're very thrilled uh, to have this opportunity. We, we welcome you to the city, uh, Your you. Eminence, and uh, as the eighth uh, Archbishop of America, uh, we welcome you to Salt Lake City, and we appreciate you inviting us in uh, to this, uh, this beautiful this facility. beautiful church. Wonderful. Well, we would, uh, we'd love to start uh, just talking about your visit here to Salt Lake City. Why Salt Lake City? Uh, Salt Lake City for the Greeks and for the Greek Orthodox immigrants in the United States, it has been, if I may say it, a hub, <laughs> uh, um, a destination that uh, Greeks preferred after the Coney Island, after New York, uh, it was the second hub that the Greeks uh, arrived in the United States pursuing the American dream. Yeah. And like to all of the immigrants uh, pursuing the same dream, it has been difficult. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it de- ex- demanded hard work in the mines. Yes. And uh, it meant a lot to them. And for the church and the Greek Orthodox uh, minority and the Greek Americans, mm. Salt Lake City is really an important city reflecting our history, reflecting our cultural and religious background, and reflecting the hard work that our predecessors and fathers had to do in order to uh, be incorporated to this beautiful country as really uh, equal citizens yeah. enjoying the same democracy and freedom that they were seeking yeah. when they came here. Yeah. It's interesting that you are here during uh, a week that uh, Utahns celebrate Pioneer Day and uh-huh. the Greek pioneers were such a, an important part of the early days of the state of Utah, working in the copper mines and establishing mm-hmm. businesses and pursuing that uh, American dream. And uh, you've been very much a part of community conversations, uh, not just interfaith, but inter-community conversations uh, around America. How have your conversations been here in Utah? It is a tradition. It's a value uh, that we have in our culture as Greeks, but uh, equally we have in our faith tradition, in our church. Our uh, church institution is the ecumenical patriarchate. So our, the head of our church has this quality of being ecumenical, of being open to all cultures. And the Greek culture has equal qualities of ecumenical character. Uh, Greek values, philosophy, astronomy, science, democracy, 
uh, everything uh, is something that uh, you know not belong only to the Greeks, but are now universal values, and are the values upon which the whole Western civilization is built, and of course our democracy, the America, United States. So we feel in the United States at home with our values and we, with our religion, with our faith, and whenever we, we visit any place, any state, we start, of course, visiting our neighbors and the authorities, the other faiths, the other churches. That's why the first thing that I did when I came to Salt Lake City is to visit the interfaith group in the city, which was uh, gathered together by the Roman Catholic bishop, who is really a very brilliant and open-minded person. Yeah. I'm so happy I met him. And of course, the other day, the next day, I met the leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, which is the dominant, the majority church here in Salt Lake City in Utah. And we had very fruitful and interesting uh, conversations. And after that, we visited the authorities, the governor and the mayor. Wonderful. That's great. I want to talk about some of those interfaith conversations. Yes. You mentioned uh, Bishop uh, Solis, Solis. Uh, who is just such a, a humble and, as you said, brilliant he, disciple. Uh, tell me about that conversation. Uh, he had the kindness to invite the leaders of all uh, the religions and faiths in the city. And I greeted them uh, with a short uh, greeting. Uh, he introduced uh, to me each and every one of that group. I had discussions, and it was a very um, beautiful coincidence that this was the first day for the, the great feast of the Muslim world, right. the Idol Adha. And uh, I really appreciated that the Muslim representative, for whom that day was very sacred, yeah. and they normally uh, celebrate this with family and friends, yeah. uh, she left family and friends mm. to come and welcome me. Mm. And that was really very encouraging and yeah. very inspiring to me. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then you, as you mentioned, you, you met with uh, President Russell M. Nelson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, as a uh, almost 97-year-old, uh, he keeps a, uh, a great pace. And uh, I've had the chance to chase him around the world a little bit on his <laughs> uh, tours. But uh, tell me about that conversation. You've been racing around having conversations as well. I think uh, looking at your staff, I know they... Uh, they chase you a lot, too, because you're, you're very busy. You keep a, a busy schedule. <laughs> I, I was very happy to meet the president. Uh, you know, if he, someone wouldn't tell me his age, I couldn't <laughs> tell that he was at that age. So he is really very uh, uh, vibrant. He is very young in mind, and we had very good conversation. We had uh, some uh, common interests, uh, like the cooperation of Christians for... Mm. Uh, on fields like uh, charity, uh, like human rights, religious freedom, uh, concerns that we have in common, especially religious freedom, which for my church being in Turkey, in Istanbul, located, and being a minority church in this country, which is predominantly Muslim country, uh, we really have some serious uh, uh, challenges, uh, exercising our faith in Turkey. And on this field, I think we can work with the leadership of the uh, 
uh, Church of Jesus Christ to see what we can do to uh, make sure that Christians all around the world have uh, the same human rights and religious freedom that all people deserve. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to dig down on that just a, a little bit. Uh, there's, there's much uh, around the world and even here in America that uh, faith is, is sort of being nudged out of the public square. Mm-hmm. It's, you can have your faith, but leave it, mm-hmm. leave it at the synagogue or the chapel or the church or the mosque or at your home. Um, tell me about your thoughts in terms of how do we make sure, uh, especially with your unique experience uh, in Istanbul, uh, how do we make sure that that space for religion is not just something that is uh, in the church or in the home, but is important in that public square? I, I really don't understand why we try to push faith in the margins of the social and uh, public life. Because this, the faith that someone has defines his personality and his or her behavior, both on political level, on social level, and in public sphere. Uh, pushing uh, this uh, faith to the margins, it's not realistic, it's not fair, and it doesn't work, actually, because people won't to be in public what they are in private. And that's a human right. I don't think we, it, we can be successful uh, on this if we try to do it. Of course, uh, having uh, a secular state and equal distances and behavior to all religions and faiths, it's another thing. And it's another thing to expect from someone to forget his faith and forget his identity because faith is part of his identity or her identity. And forget it and behave like he has no faith or she has no values on religion uh, while in uh, working space or uh, other um, expressions of his public and social life. Uh, We need to respect even the, the public expression of someone's faith whatever this, this faith is, uh, the only, uh, of course, uh, term, the only condition is that this expression does not uh, restrict the expression of the others. Sure. So there are limits to everything. Yeah. If our, my expression of faith does not prevent someone else to express his or her own faith also, then we have a problem. And we have we can resolve this kind of problems with dialogue that's why we believe in the ecumenical patriarchate and as a greek orthodox archdiocese of america we believe in dialogue and cooperation not only among christian faiths and churches but with all religions yeah uh, that's such an important uh, component to uh, to that that people are allowed to bring their their whole authentic self uh, into the public. I know you've been very active, uh, not just in terms of interfaith dialogue, but in terms of addressing other big issues uh, that we deal with in the country and around the world, things of, of race and prejudice, things of uh, poverty and upward mobility. Tell us about some of your conversations. What should we be thinking about uh, in terms of that dialogue? We, we talk mm-hmm. about crucial conversations, even uncomfortable conversations. I think you've done that incredibly well. We need to remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said while describing the final judgment. 
And he was saying that when he will come back again, his second coming, judging the world and discerning people who deserve heaven and people who don't deserve heaven, he will ask questions like, I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. I needed, I was naked and you clothed me. Things that we sometimes forget. He didn't, he, he will not ask who attended the church services every Sunday, uh, who fasted or who did not fast, or other things that we value more in our days. So he is, in this, uh, uh, in this aspect, more revolutionary than we think and than we are. And he is showing us the way how to deal with each other, how to respect the human person, without any uh, prejudices and without any other uh, uh, ideas of uh, uh, discerning people and distinguishing two categories that they don't deserve it. All human persons are human, are God's creation. Even the natural environment mm -hmm. expects our, um, our respect, our care, and our concern, because they are, everything is God's creation, and the same way we respect and love human person as as God's creation, the same way we need to respect environment, mm -hmm. which is equally a well done creation of our Lord. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I love this focus on uh, on outcomes versus activity. Uh, I, I always say that you know, no one's going to be uh, judged by how many chairs they set up at the church <laughs> you know, or how many meetings they attended. Uh, but I do think it's what we become. And I think what you're describing is that in our conversations, uh, we can get to more important outcomes. And whether that's feeding uh, the hungry or helping the homeless or creating opportunity, yeah. uh, those really are the conversations we have to get to. For example, when I visited the mayor... I was impressed how much she was concerned for the environment mm -hmm. by planting uh, trees in the city. And I told her the same story that I told you about Jesus Christ judging the world because she is also uh, f uh, very active in uh, feeding and taking care of the homeless. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I uh, observed the same values and the same behavior on the governors. Mm -hmm. And this is where I, I, I observed something that it, it's not easy to find. You have two politicians uh, from different political parties, mm -hmm. but they have the same values. Yeah. And this is so beautiful and so, I mean, you are so lucky as Utahns having these uh, political leaders who, uh, although they are from different political parties, they, they share the same values. This, well, uh, me uh, as visiting an, a politician and expressing my concerns about the environment, for example, things that are often very much politicized and categorizes someone as uh, an, an adherent of this or the other party, if you say things about the environment, 
it's something sometimes unpleasant for a religious leader like myself uh, because I don't want to belong to any political party. I just teach what I, my Lord has uh, taught me to teach and what the gospel is saying. Uh, that some of the uh, evangelical and, and the religious values we have as a Christian Orthodox Church are used by certain political parties makes our lives really difficult and bring me in difficult positions sometimes defending values that I have to defend uh, because of my identity as uh, an, a Christian leader. Yeah, uh, I think so often we we get caught in the politics of the, uh, we call it the fake fight and the false choice uh, that is often presented uh, but when you are able to get people to get to principles, uh, you do find that we have much more in common than what divides us. Uh, in your experience, Your Eminence, how, uh, how can we do that better? Uh, because it's, the, of course, what we hear on the news and we hear in the national media that we are too divided to, to do anything. Uh, how do we get to recognize what you just described of that focus on principle that actually unites us? I think we need, as, polit as religious leaders, we need to remember that religion cannot be a factor of division, but rather a factor of unity, bringing people together. And we cannot let politics make out of our teachings uh, tools for their own political uh, ideas or plans. Uh, and of course, uh, we cannot allow politics to use certain teachings of our faith uh, to discern people to good, faithful, or unfaithful uh, followers or opponents of our churches. This brings a, a division not only in our nation, in, in societies, but brings division in our own churches and faiths also. And we need to work a lot on that, uh, not to allow to any, any uh, uh, religious value mm -hmm. that we have to become a criterion for political behavior. Yeah, wonderful. Mm -hmm. I want to shift now to, uh, to the church and uh, particularly the young people. Uh, in America in particular, uh, their young people seem to be looking elsewhere or finding their own space that way. What have you found and what do you think the, uh, the answer is in terms mm -hmm. of uh, helping young people uh, get grounded in that faith. Thank you for this question, because although uh, we in our faith have, we think we have all the answers to the concerns of the youth, we some, we, most of the times we fail to relate to the youth in a way that they understand mm -hmm. and they expect to be related to our faith. So the, this is where we, we lose the connection with them, mm -hmm. And this is truly unfortunate. This is a homework that we have to work in, in our churches and to see how we can relate the values of the faith, which are, I'm sure, uh, shared by the youth. They, our youth are nice people. Yeah. They have values. They have faith. They, they love uh, their fellow human. They love the environment. Uh, they love peace and peaceful coexistence of all cultures and, uh, and uh, nations. And so we have come, we believe the same thing, but how is it that we cannot relate 
with them, the, uh, the, the level that we expected, this is something we really want to re-examine and to, uh, why not to, to change in our churches and structures in a way that we can reach out to them and speak the language they expect and they understand. Uh, I think so many, I'm one of those who defends the young people often because yeah. uh, I think they do have great faith and great exactly. grounding. They, they tend to do it different. They'll do it online or in yeah. different ways. Are, are there other things that, uh, whether that's uh, about the youth or the, the members of the church as a whole, uh, that you're really focused on in terms of if we can help uh, people understand this, mm-hmm. that will make a difference in homes, in communities, and in society? The best way to do it is to involve uh, people and clergy or um, members of our church at the same age who speak the same language. Because no matter, sometimes we, the older, and I ex- include myself to the, non, to the older generation, since I'm 54 and I don't think that I'm young anymore, uh, not the age that these generations would expect me to be. So I try to involve younger priests and who understand, who are closer yeah. at the, uh, the culture and the language that the younger generations speak to relate to them in a way that they expect and they feel more comfortable. We, the, uh, in the leading uh, uh, positions like myself, uh, sometimes even our appearance with all this you know, uh, outfit, it's scary for the youth mm-hmm. uh, and uh, bring, always uh, keeps a distance. They cannot approach us the same way they can approach a younger priest who is, uh, you know, uh, more related to them. Uh, And this is what I'm trying to promote, to promote younger generations in every aspect of the church, in the administration, uh, in the clergy, in the ministries of the church, both uh, women and men. Because, uh, again, religions tend to uh, promote more men than women, and this is something we have to change and to, to promote with a, a more vibrant and uh, uh, active participation of women yeah. in the life of that. So if we have that, I think it will be more in a natural way to approach the youth than having meetings where only old people attend and they don't know how to deal with the younger people. Yeah. And they don't even wonder why uh, there is no uh, young men among them discussing this issue. We older people, we discuss for the young people without the young people. Mm. And this is part of the problem. Yeah, Yeah, I think having that voice of the young people, of the women, everyone needs a seat at the table. We need to listen to them. Mm. They have nice things to tell us. Yeah, Yeah, important things Mm. for sure. Uh, so finally, we, we like to round out our conversation with, uh, we call it the therefore what question. So you've, you've been here in, in Utah for several days now, yes. and uh, you've had uh, meetings uh, with government leaders as well as religious leaders. Uh, what's, what's your takeaway from your experience here in Utah? What, uh, what's the therefore what moment for you? Uh, before my visit, I, had, I was briefed by my uh, people communications and other people, what is Utah, Uh, what is Salt Lake City, all this general information. And I was surprised. I said, Utah being uh, the most developed uh, state in the first quarter of 2021 financially, what's going on there? Why, uh, Why we don't know that? 
And when I, now that I'm here several days, as you said, and I saw that the Utahns are so much united with each other, and uh, that there is such a peaceful coexistence and cooperation of all uh, kinds of ethnic uh, and linguistic and cultural background of all people, how politicians coming from different political parties share the same values. Now this, uh, this secret uh, th- is not a secret anymore to me, <laughs> but I can tell you is the uh, best well-kept uh, secret in America. It's a beautiful state. Yeah. The nature is beautiful. Yeah. I expected you know, a deserted <laughs> uh, place like you know, in the western <laughs> desert yeah. place, but it's, it's a green place, mm-hmm. and this is due to the love of the Utahns and the Salt Lake City citizens to, uh, to plant trees and to keep the environment living. Uh, I heard always about the drought, uh, but I saw uh, mountains full of uh, trees. I saw lakes. I saw, uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful, uh, both in natural terms and in human terms. It's a beautiful city. It's the fastest growing state. And I hope that it will grow sustainable, beautifully without damaging the environment and without damaging the human relations a city and the state that will be an example for all of us yeah wonderful well your eminence we appreciate you taking some time we we appreciate your discipleship and your leadership on so many important conversations thanks for being with us today thank you so much Again, that's my conversation uh, with His Eminence Archbishop, Archbishop uh, Elpido Foros, of the head of the Greek Orthodox Church in America. Historic visit here to the state of Utah uh, last late last week, spent the weekend here. And uh, there's just so many things that I learned from that conversation. As I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, I, I definitely had some holy envy for uh, much of what the Greek community brings and their important role uh, not just here in the state of Utah, but around the world. And uh, it it reminded me of uh, some interesting interactions uh, early on. I remember uh, during the floods in the uh, the early 80s, uh, there was just uh, such a great coming together. And <clears throat> one of the things that uh, came together, uh, my father happened to be a bishop of a Latter-day Saint congregation at the time. And, of course, we needed sandbags uh, to uh, to deal with the floods there. And it was it was a lot of organization, and I think the uh, local folks uh, chose to have my dad kind of coordinate this volunteer effort, uh, not because of his position, but because we had uh, seven girls in the house, my seven sisters, uh, and we had three phone lines uh, back in the day. And so because we had three phone lines, we, we could do a lot of coordinating uh, out of our house. And uh, but I will always remember I will always remember when the the leaders of the the Greek Orthodox Church uh, came over to see what they could do. And the conversation was just so uh, amazing to me uh, as a teenager uh, to watch people come together. of How do we solve this problems? And uh, I'll never forget the, uh, the 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 leader of the Greek Orthodox Church uh, said to my dad that, hey, we, we don't uh, we don't coordinate uh, we, we don't create spreadsheets, uh, but we do food incredibly well. Let us feed the volunteers. And they did. And there was just this great connection uh, between congregations as they came together around a, a project, everybody doing what they did best. Uh, and uh, that was always a, a great memory to me. And, uh, of course, also growing up for me, 
uh, one of the most profound influences on my life uh, was George Suval, basketball coach, a member of the Greek Orthodox community there in Holiday. And interesting, I always talk about Coach Suval, and most people ask, well, you know, where did he coach you? What team was it? Uh, and he he never coached me in a game. Uh, it was just practice. And we practiced basketball, but uh, the conversations were about many more things, many of the things that his eminence shared with us during this past hour uh, that have given me so much to think about. I have already shared these conversations uh, with neighbors and friends, and I hope you do the same uh, because there are so many important lessons in there in terms of how we treat each other, what we decide is important, uh, how we'll be judged in the end. Uh, I just love the the fact that his eminence focused on, hey, it's, it's not going to be how many meetings you went to or who fasted and who didn't on a given Sunday. It's going to be how did we treat each other and how did we help each other and how did we strengthen each other. And uh, again, uh, a lot of holy envy uh, from me and a lot of gratitude uh, for our friends in the Greek Orthodox community and for his eminence, Archbishop Elpido Foros, for his great insight, for his generous gift of time. And I'll tell you, as we concluded, uh, he wanted to know about my congregation and what we do to minister and to serve and to help each other. Uh, he has a, an incredible gift for people uh, that we all could learn from. Go to a KSL podcast, listen to my entire interview with the Archbishop on KSL News Radio. Stay with us, hour number two, straight ahead. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.